someone said resting on my knee warm and tender as he can be who takes good care of me I wouldn't be lovely 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 the winner is Hello and welcome to this episode of Categorically Oscars. I'm Cal. And I'm Chris. And this week we're going to be talking about uh, Best Actor in a Leading Role 1964 um, with some heavy hitters in this lineup. And a couple of misogynists, as I mentioned on the uh, Oscar prediction episode we just released um, earlier in the week. But yeah, I... I mean, it was a man's world in 1964, I think we could safely say. Yes, it absolutely was. And even the Best Picture winner, which has Lady right in the title, I don't think would pass the Bechtel test. Um, And these other ones absolutely would not, uh, mainly because there's barely any women who speak in them. So it's it's a very male-centric lineup not quite as male-centric i think as 1962 uh lawrence of arabia famously has no female speaking roles but still definitely symptomatic of the time uh yeah and the only uh film with a female lead is not represented in this category i should say the only best picture nominee without with a female lead yeah yeah um, and the one and the f- the female characters there are in these films just get absolutely lambasted <laughs> by yeah. the men as well. Um, save for maybe Gladys Gladys Cooper might escape that, but pretty much everyone else um, just gets trapped terribly. But there we go. Yeah. Um, so, what are the nominees for this year, and and why did you choose this category? Well, um, the nominees are Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole, both for Beckett, Anthony Quinn for Zorba the Greek, Peter Sellers in Dr. Strangelove, and the winner was Rex Harrison as Professor Henry Iggins in My Fair Lady. <laughs> and I chose this category because, as, um, as we mentioned on Twitter a month or so ago, this is my favorite acting category lineup of all time mainly because as you say it's just a lot of heavy hitters and the performances range from okay to career high um yes and they are just phenomenal and we i actually uh proposed this category when we were first starting the podcast and kind of listing things we'd like to do. And as I recall our conversation about it then, I think this episode is going to snap our streak of having the same or similar rankings at the end. But It will, it will, yes, because my opinion's not changed um, on, on one of these nominees. Yeah, so... Yeah, I I, this, I think these are broadly great Best Actor nominees. There's maybe one I'm not on board with. So, yeah, great category. 
Okay, so we'll start by talking about Beckett, um, Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole in Beckett. Um, this was originally a French play um, on which uh, it was given, first performance was given in Paris in the 50s. Um, and it kind of does make sense that it's a French play because it is the Normans here from Normandy we're talking about um, who would cer- certainly have spoken French. And the English do like to sort of like reconstitute the history a little bit to suit their image, you know, which is why, you know, they called Henry and not Henri, as they probably yeah. would be known otherwise. Um, and there's all sorts of foreign blood in the royal family lineage, despite all this pretense of Britishness. Um, but in terms of like royal costume dramas uh, like this one, and there have been so many that have been made, I think Beckett definitely ranks among one of the more resoundingly successful costume drama productions. Yes, absolutely. Um, There's so many of this type of film, especially in the 60s, which have these kind of lavish production values and big stars and epic scopes, but they just, they feel very... Uh, staged and very kind of um, fake ersatz in their in their presentation. Yeah, I'm. It's not about the. It's not a British costume drama, but I'm thinking particularly of uh, the year prior to this. We had Cleopatra, which is just the pinnacle of everything that's wrong with this type of film. Um, <laughs> Rex Harrison also in that. Also in that. Also Oscar nominated for that. Um, but this one is the pinnacle of everything that's right. Uh, and that's due in no small part to the amazing chemistry between O'Toole and Burton as the co-leads. Um, they do so well together and in their scenes when they're apart thinking about the other one, the presence of the other one is always kind of lurking in the performance. And so they're able to portray the disintegrating relationship between Beckett and Henry II um, very convincingly and very humanly. Yeah, they're they're sort of haunted by each other, really. And at the beginning, it all kind of starts off as a bit of a bromance and they they sort of like pick up women together, uh, pretty much literally just pick them up off the street and I'm having that one. Um, But... It, it, that kind of blossoms into the, you know, this homoeroticism um, at times, especially from uh, Henry, who just seems to be absolutely besotted uh, with Beckett. But yep. what I really appreciated watching it this time is that you think it's going to end up being a story of how much Beckett can endure Henry's sort of spoiled brat behaviour and arrogance, whereas you know, with the driving the woman to suicide, etc. But I think eventually it kind of becomes much more than that after Beckett's promoted to the Archbishop role. And it ends up feeling like it's a story about two men who are misguided um, in different ways. And I did ultimately feel as if Beckett has to shoulder some of the blame for what happens to him, which is interesting, which I didn't feel in the, the first time I watched it. Um, did, did you feel that they were both blameless or was it all Henry's fault? 
Oh, no, I think they definitely have um, degrees of culpability. I think obviously with the extreme power uh, imbalance between the two of them, I think it's still fair to put most of the blame on Henry. Mm. But um, Beckett definitely has his own part to play in his in his acquiescence and in his refusal to stand up to Henry when he's really the only person who can um, and eventually gets himself um, painted into a corner. Although I do love the scene where he begs Henry not to make him archbishop uh, because you can just, and Burton plays it so well, you can see him kind of looking into the future and knowing what's going to happen if he is given this role that his his conscious his conscience which has been lying dormant for so long will finally have an outlet and he's going to let it he's going to let it go and he's going to follow it um where it has to go but he could have made that clearer to henry he could have said more than just like please don't do this he could have he could have explained himself uh, if he really wanted to but would that outlet have always been the church? That that's what sort of that's what I found interesting. That really part of the enemy of the peace is the the sort of power that that religious institutions have at this point, um, and it is very much the grappling between the the, the monarchy and the um, the clergy. And I feel like. How you've described Beckett there, I think, is accurate because I feel like it, it wasn't necessarily God that he was going to find. It was his role, and he didn't really have a role before that. He was just sort of the the Lothario sidekick. And um, becoming a noble figurehead, I think he then ends up taking himself too seriously and, and his role too seriously. Um, and he's eventually sort of used as a scapegoat by both sides. So... It is a really interesting uh, sort of dilemma that the film's got a lot going on. Um, and you couldn't really get two more different lead performances nominated for the same film. No, absolutely not. They both um, they both approach the roles very differently and the, and the roles themselves are incredibly different, which is part of what makes this film so perfect because they they are foils to each other throughout and playing off of each other all the time as they as their character arcs progress um and like i said before they're always if they're not present they're spiritually present all the time yeah yeah and O'Toole is this big extrovert um wearing his heart on his sleeve and O'Toole was very good at doing that um in a lot of films, I don't think it's a million miles away from The Lion in Winter. Four years before, I think it's interesting yeah. that those are supposed to be the same character um, played a couple of decades apart, really. Um, but the films themselves only four years apart. I think there's definitely similarities to how he plays um, those two characters and maybe to an extent Lawrence of Arabia, although that was definitely a shyer performance. Um, but... It's, uh, but I think most of, for me, most of the interest came with Burton and mainly because that character has a lot more conflict, inner conflict. I think Henry knows who he is for the most part, whereas I don't think Beckett does. 
Yeah. But this is um this is one of the rare examples of two lead acting nominations from the same film. It happened less with actress, I think only five times with actress. And yeah. this has not happened since Amadeus with F. Murray Abraham and Tom Hulse. Um, why do you think that is, that the, this has not happened for a long time? I think it's just because it's rare to get a film with two strong, two lead performances this strong and also two lead characters with this much kind of equal weight in the story. Um, and maybe also just pure how they market the nominations, how they push the nominations. I mean, Burton and and O'Toole were both leading men, and that was just who they were, so they weren't going to be shoved into supporting at this point in their career. Yeah. Um, Whereas, you know, you have John Gilgood got the supporting actor nod, and he definitely was. He was the character actor. He was the person who comes in for five minutes and steals the movie. So it makes sense for him to be there. But, um, and yeah, I, I can't think of too many movies in recent years where um, two Best Actor nominations would have made sense. What about last year? I'm thinking like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with mm. those being two big, big famous actors. Yeah. Facing off against I- each other. Yeah, I guess if you're if those that movie had to get nominated for Oscars, I guess sure. Um, mm. But also, these days actors and also their PR and the studio PR is much more willing to shift between lead and supporting, so it's not as big a deal. If Brad Pitt and DiCaprio were active in the '60s, it would have been probably both of them would have been Best Actor. Simply because yeah. they they weren't perf- they weren't supporting actors that just wasn't what they were their brand you know yeah and like I think a recent example in the actress category is Olivia Colman for the favorite um, who said that the other two actresses sort of conceded and said that they wanted her to be the lead but you do kind of wonder what's going to happen if nobody backs down is the studio just going to go with what they want or might we get a possibility where there's two completely um, stubborn actors that will not accept it either way and the studio has to bow down to them. But it would have to take a lot, I think. But I'm glad you um, mentioned John Gielgud because I agree, I thought he was wonderful in the two scenes. And it is only two scenes um, that he's in for his supporting nomination, but I completely agree with his nomination and with the lead actor nominations too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same. And also it's it's um, a nice treat for Beatles fans. Um, the tailor for uh, Louis is played by Victor Spinetti, who you may remember uh, from A Hard Day's Night the last time we did 1964. Um, he plays the television director in A Hard Day's Night and he also plays uh, Professor Foote in Help. And so, yeah, he's well-known to Beatles fanatics. He was a busy boy. He really was. <laughs> um, we, we're we going to rank these later, so we can't spoil spoil it to a certain extent. But um, 
is if there is a film that Burton or Toole could have won for, because neither would ever win, um, did did Beckett deserve to be the one for either of these actors? Do do you think either of these these are career best performances from from Burton or O'Toole? I think um I think it might just be for Burton, I'm going to say for sure. For O'Toole, I'm on the fence. Um, his 60s nominations, all three of them could have been wins, as far as I'm concerned, or even should have been wins. Yeah. And so it's hard for me to say this is a career high. He was kind of on a high for the whole decade. So I will say I think this is my favorite Richard Burton performance, and I would have loved him to win an Oscar for this performance as well, though he's also great and he also deserved it for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, I think. And I would argue Spy Who Came In From The Cold, um, mm. also great in the 60s. Um, the, yeah, two actors that definitely should have won eventually. Um, Equus as, as well for Burton is a great performance. Um, so it, it, it is a shame, but they, they work very well together here and... I think the movie doesn't feel that long either, which is really good. It's like it's two hours and 25 minutes and it really zips along quickly. It, you know, whenever you kind of thinking, OK, get on with it, it kind of does. And then we go to France and then we get back. And I did kind of wonder, would the French be so willing to accept a, an English member of the clergy in their sort of realm and like protect them? I think that was an interesting uh decision story decision i don't know if it's accurate or not yeah uh, the accuracy of the film uh could be a whole episode in itself but i mean as as louis said um right now it was in his interest to kind of play around with henry by sheltering beckett and he and he says, in a month, maybe I'll turn you over. You really don't know, and I don't know how the political game is going to play out. So I thought that was kind of, even if it wasn't historically accurate, it was established in the film very well, Louis' uh, motivation for, for helping Beckett. Yeah, it was very frank about it, yeah. yeah. Nice, very frank. Um, <laughs> but... Speaking of um, historical accuracy, one of the biggest inaccuracies of the film is the fact that Beckett was not a Saxon in real life. He was also a Norman, same as same as Henry. Um, and the the writer of the original play based his play on another, uh, like a nineteenth century history that identified Thomas Beckett as a Saxon. And even after he found out it was wrong, he decided to leave it in because it was more interesting. And he said, maybe history will eventually rediscover that Beckett was a Saxon after all. (laughs) And I think that that's a great response to historical inaccuracy. Well, maybe we'll get new information someday. You know, you never know. Well, I think it like you get films like this now, I think. The other Berlin girl and um, Mary Queen of Scots in the past decade or so, and you think like they ha- have access to so much more information than they did in the sixties, but really, mm. it's not really about how accurate you are. 
um, it's it's about how interesting a story you're telling. Um, so Beckett's a complete success for me. Like a couple of errors here and there, not that big of a deal. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely amazing. And also your earlier point, how it doesn't feel draggy, even though it's two and a half hours. It's, yeah, great film. Amazing film. Yeah. Zorba the Greek, however. Um... <laughs> uh, yes, they they went another way. <laughs> I um I think it does it does feel like Zorba the Greek. We we did Best Actress nineteen sixty with with Never on Sunday with Jules Dassin. Um, I feel like this exists in part due to Never on Sunday and the success of that film, which did have a similar plot. Um of an Englishman traveling to Greece and sort of getting himself embroiled with the locals, uh, shall we say. But yeah. I, th- I think this is like the third time I've tried with this film and I just can't get to the point where I like it. I admire elements of it, but I just can't, f- I don't think it fully works. D- did you like it at all? I I like it somewhat. Um, and I, I thought you were going to just end this your sentence with you couldn't quite get to the point and i think that's a fair <laughs> criticism uh the film definitely um it was edited by its director um michael kakayanis which might explain why he wasn't a little more brutal with it and why he didn't trim it a little more um yeah it, it's kind of a mess from a structural point of view and it never seems to, it, it packs in a lot of elements and a lot of story beats and a lot of characters to such a point that it never kind of settles on one of them long enough to fully develop it. Um, it's, it's very episodic, but I get the sense that it wasn't meant to be episodic. It's, that's exactly the word, yeah. It's it's episodic and um, it's got a strange lack of focus as well. Um, I feel like the focus should be how a Basil and Zorba, how do Basil and Zorba, you know, develop their relationship? And it sort of feels like Basil's um, gets, you know, on board with Zorba in the first quarter of an hour. And that doesn't really change um, despite whatever Zorba does and, that for me was a problem. Um, I think what would have been interesting is if Zorba had sort of ragtagged Basil along and Basil eventually grows to like him, you know. Um, I just didn't feel that their arc was um, felt that real um, as a friendship, but that might be to do with the casting. Um, I didn't think Alan Bates was cast very well and Anthony Quinn, as I think, when we did the the Shoes of the Fisherman episode, you sort of hit the nail on the head when you said they just kind of wheel Anthony Quinn out to be the sort of foreigner playing a, a Greek or Cretan person here and actually Mexican, um, which it, it, it doesn't feel quite right. Yeah, I, I agree. It's kind of strange throughout and the casting is not great. Um and yeah, Anthony Quinn, who, happy birthday, by the way, today, uh, as we're recording this, would have been his 106th birthday. Um, oh, wow. 
Happy birthday. And yeah, he yeah, like yeah, like we said, he's just kind of the catch-all foreigner. He puts on a vague accent and just runs with it. And the yeah, the the friendship between the two of them is just kind of assumed. And I get that Zorba is a very big personality and he just kind of insinuates himself in with um with Bates and I'm completely blanking on his character's name Basil you just said it Basil um and so yeah Zorba's just kind of the manic pixie dream Greek who sweeps in (laughs) and you know causes havoc sometimes fixes lives but more often just kind of makes things uh makes things worse and it's it yeah it's just a strange dynamic throughout the film and if anything bad happens they just kind of forget it immediately and move on to the next antic yeah and i also thought there was going to be some at least something would come from the mine um like Uh that just seems to be something that's completely ignored i thought like maybe at the end they'd find something amazing in the mine and that would um, be like a celebratory ending um, the, which they kind of go the other way with that which I like but again at the end I'm thinking this is actually a really fun ending but you haven't earned it to be honest Yeah. but I mean in terms of Quinn I think he was always quite soulful he always brought something soulful to every role um, but I don't think he was ever that specific with his performances and very much the everyman actor, um, which again probably lends itself to Zorba because he's this sort of figure of fascination, but not a great amount of depth there. Um, I think the only scene where I kind of thought, oh, okay, was where he's had the dance and he's talking about his son, which mm-hmm. I think is like a moment where the film wants us to reconsider the character, which I kind of did. And I thought, oh, okay, this is not a free-spirited hedonist necessarily. It's maybe someone trying to escape uh, their own troubles or trauma. Um, So that did force me to reconsider a little bit. But then the film kind of goes the other way again. And I just didn't feel like there was enough of that in the movie. I think, fair enough, he maybe redeems himself with the way he, uh, he treats Madame Hortense towards the end. And... Um, he stands by her in the end, but it's a rough ride. I I wasn't fully on board, so yeah, I I wanted a bit more humanism to the character. Agreed. Yeah, and talk about um, talk about women getting treated rather shabbily, um, and and this film does not paint a very flattering picture of small town Greek people. Um, they're barbarians, basically, Mm. which, which is ironic because barbarian comes from the Greek word for anybody who isn't Greek. Um, (laughs) they just, they're superstitious, they're close-minded, they're violent, and, like, who are these people? It does not make me want to visit Crete. I mean, I want to visit Crete, because I don't think these people are there anymore, but... Well, I have a Greek friend whose heritage is in Crete, I think. Um, Mm. She's probably going to hate this episode. Apologies. 
But yeah, I, I was kind of wondering whether that was accurate at all. Um, but again, with everything that happens with Irene Papas's character, I, I did feel like that felt a bit forced and their connection didn't feel that real to me either. But yeah. but I did really like Leela Kadrova this time and it's taken me a while to warm up to the performance, but I do think it's probably the deepest performance in the film and by far the most interesting performance in the film. Because um, she she gets across this, the clownish aspects, you know, with the kind of woman clinging to former glories and a, a little bit deluded and... Um, up in the clouds Um, but I think she works well with Anthony Quinn and like where he's on the bed saying you know I'm your Cannavaro and she's crying and she's like wait where are your feathers where's your beard I think like the character's done for sympathy and it's not as mean-spirited as I remembered it so I think there's something to get from Madame Hortense's character although I think it would have been interesting if Simone Signore had played it as was originally intended. Yeah, when I found that out, I I did kind of daydream a bit about her in the role because I think she would have been amazing as she I mean as she always was. But I agree, she's she's a very strong part of the film, probably the strongest performance in it. Um and nice that she got the Oscar for supporting actress for that. And yeah, poor Irene Pappas, you know, she was in three Best Picture nominees in the 60s, this one, and then Anna the Thousand Days, and Z, and, sorry, Zed for our uh, British listeners, <laughs> and I think she has like 10 lines in, between all three films. She really didn't get a lot to do in these um, very high-profile films, which is a shame. Yeah, because I think she did have a lot of success in Greece. Um so, yeah, it's it's sad that that didn't really cross mm-hmm. over. Um, I wanted to mention the music. How did this music not get nominated? Is this, is it an existing piece? Because I'm thinking, like, the music is brilliant. And um, I believe it's still celebrated in Greece, this music. But I think this is original, this, this work. So I'm surprised. Perhaps maybe a bit yep. too... Uh, off the beaten track for that branch at this time maybe yeah but yeah it was it was original and it is amazing um and you know how can how can you not like a good bazooki score um <laughs> yeah i don't know how it wasn't how it wasn't nominated is uh is a mystery but i i want to say that my um my family on my father's side um has uh, Cretan roots. Um, my yaya's family came from Crete, and my aunt has been to Crete visiting the old family, and she says it's very beautiful. So um, I want to balance out my earlier comments about <laughs> Crete. Crete being a a backwards place, I think nowadays it's uh, it's quite lovely. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. That's fair enough. So we've redeemed that about Crete, please. Um... If anybody's yes. listening, we don't offend the locals. Okay, um, so on to Peter Sellers' uh, first nomination for Doctor Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying Love the Bomb, Stanley Kubrick's classic, um, apparently. And this film was made in the aftermath of the Cuban Missiles Crisis of 62. 
which definitely sort of alerted more people to the threat of escalating conflict, nuclear conflict. And I think there was actually a Sydney Lumet film the same year as Dr. Strangelove called Failsafe, which is pretty much about the same subject. And I think that starred Henry Fonda and it's a bit of an all out dramatic production. Um, so I think like Lamette must have been like really bummed, right? When he went and saw Dr. Strangelove and thought like, <laughs> this is how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have seen um, that other film and it's not bad, but yeah, definitely the timing of it being released around the same time as Dr. Strangelove was unfortunate for it. Yeah. But I, I think certain people didn't like Dr. Strangelove at the time. I know Bosley Crowther of the New York Times um, was particularly scathing. Well, he he was just babbling incoherently by 1964. (laughs) But it does feel like this definitely wasn't the film for those sort of McCarthy era stalwarts, Hedda Hopper and the like, um, with the sort of nationalist ideals that you can't possibly criticise your own government or your own military or your own foreign policy. But this still... They still managed four nominations, um, all of which I think were pretty deserved. Absolutely, yeah. And missed out on some that it absolutely should have gotten. Like, it did not get art direction or cinematography. And that is... uh, the, The art direction in particular is just baffling to me. How do you not nominate this amazing set design and amazing attention to detail? Agreed, yeah. And um, I think also the other production values, I think the song at the end, which I think when we did the Seven Beauties episode with that iconic opening, that the end of this movie with Vera Lynn will meet again, um, the, the sort of wartime song, which is about parted lovers and this message of hope used for completely different reasons, um, over footage of, of a nuclear holocaust it's just really really inspired i just think it's just um a masterstroke from kubrick absolutely yeah and much better than the way he originally had the film ending and i think actually the the use of we'll meet again specifically was suggested to him by the comedian spike Millig- milligan oh, wow. who uh was obviously friends and uh, work colleague with Peter Sellers at the time. So, uh, was it the Goonies? The, Go- yeah, the, the Goonies. Goonies. Yeah. So yeah. he suggested we'll meet again um, for that sequence. So, what was the original ending then? Oh, I um, well, I actually don't know if it would have been instead of we'll meet again with the bombs, but there was an additional scene in between. Mein Führer, I Can Walk, and the <laughs> bombs in which the war room breaks out into a pie fight. Oh, God. <laughs> and and the film was shot and edited. Um, no, it doesn't survive anymore. I think when Kubrick cut it, he uh, destroyed the prints, but you can see pictures of it online. Um, and it yeah, it was shot, edited, and you if you went to the original premiere you would have seen it um but it was cut by kubrick for two reasons first because he rightly decided that a slapstick ending like that would not have fit the tone of the film yeah and also um there was a line in it 
where President Muffley gets hit in the face with a pie, and General Turgidson exclaims, um, gentlemen, our beloved president has been struck down in his prime. And you may imagine that line not going over great right after Kennedy was assassinated, so... Oh, so I guess this film was um, filmed while Kennedy was still alive. It was no yeah, November, so it was actually, wasn't it? it had a, yeah, it had its premiere the day he was killed, and they actually pushed the release into January 1964 because they didn't want to release an irreverent comedy about nuclear holocaust right in the aftermath of Kennedy's assassination. So that's why we're talking about it in 1964 instead of 1963. I think that's probably a wise move, and um, definitely. Yeah. I mean, the fact that it managed to then stay in voters' minds from January '64 uh, all the way over to the next year is definitely speaks for how good it is. Um, and I, I, I like. I read that Kubrick was laughing at Sellers a lot during filming this, um, and you can understand why. I, I laughed a lot at this movie. I've not seen it in so long. 13, 14 years, and it just held up so well. Um, in terms of satire, you can't ask for much more, really, to be honest. Um, and it is amazing how well Sellers works with the rest of the cast. His scenes as the president with George C. Scott, and then his scenes as, is it Mandrake? Uh, uh, with Ster- Is it Sterling Hale- Hayden? It's Sterling Hayden, yeah. Yeah, um, who's also great, actually. Um but mm-hmm. I think especially with uh, Sellers playing Luffley, that just initial conversation in the war room between him and Turgidson about what's happened and the completely contrasting attitudes to it is just hilarious. Yeah, it's it's absolutely incredible, his performance in all three roles, and it's amazing how different they all are i mean he was famous for his chameleon like uh manner of slipping into different roles and just inhabiting them and that's on display here probably is again kind of a career high display of his talent and he was also he was supposed to play the pilot of the b-52 as well major kong and depending on who you ask, it was either because he broke his leg and couldn't move around the B-52 set or he just couldn't get the Texan accent down. But either way, he was supposed to play that major character as well. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of clips of his where he's just talking in interviews and then he'll just slip into a different accent and a different persona mm-hmm. and, and still be, like, really, really funny. Like, I saw this interview with... Um, he was with Liza Minnelli, who he was engaged to, I think, for, a, I think, a month, um, sometime in the late 70s, which is probably not the pairing you'd expect. But yeah. he, he's just, like, like got different uh, characters that he's playing, and he's just making a laugh, all while this, like, news correspondent's interviewing them. So it definitely seems like he was just a naturally hilarious person. Um but it does feel very attuned in he, in this to the kind of satire that Kubrick's script is going for. And I think Sellers did have a contribution to the script as well, which is probably not surprising. I mean, in terms of trying to rank Kubrick's work, 
Like this has got to be near the top for me, but it's so difficult because every film he did was so different. To be honest, like he just yeah. lurched from Paths of Glory, a war film, and then later on you've got The Shining, a quintessential horror film. There's just so many different ways he sort of showcased his talent and. Then at the end of his career, you get this erotic thriller, Eyes Wide Shut, which I just feel like is the crowning glory of it, to be honest. Mm. Which we sadly won't talk about because it wasn't nominated for an Oscar. Um, the reviews weren't that kind. But um, I did feel like it was sort of was fitting that he ended on such a great note as well. Um, and didn't die that old either, which is a shame. Mm-hmm. I uh, completely agree. And... Um... Like Kubrick, as I may have mentioned before, is my favorite filmmaker. And he basically just has a decades long run of masterpieces beginning with Dr. Strangelove and ending with Eyes Wide Shut. He did not make a bad film in 35 years, which is incredible. And this film to me is, I mean, I have placed this as my favorite film of all time before and mm-hmm. it is absolutely every time i watch it it reawakens my love for it and i think yep this is it as a satire it's perfect as a just a piece of filmmaking as with so many of his films it's perfect the script is tight the performances are amazing i mean outside of sellers you got george c scott just talk about a career high um, yes. performance and, and a, a performance that surprised even him because he didn't think he could do comedy and he was he was amazed by his performance also a little angry because Kubrick used the takes where he was really going over the top and he he had promised he wouldn't so when he saw the finished film he was actually initially angry but he he got over it well you needed a bit bit of both didn't you you needed a bit of deadpan oh, yeah. And you needed a bit of sort of crazy military guy um, going overboard. I think like Sellers' work is like deceptively subtle in some of this, like especially with Mandrake, where it kind of feels like he might be buying uh, the general and uh, his attitude, and that's all kind of an act. And really, he's terrified inside. And that funny scene where the the soldier comes in. And they have to shoot the <laughs> Coca-Cola machine. I just and you cheering for him. You say, "Come on, believe him, believe him." Um, he's telling the truth, um, and he and he gets the code. And it's such a great character, you know. I think three completely different characters, but they all work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, he brings such a different energy to each of them, and. You talked earlier about Kubrick uh, laughing at his performance. Um, initially, when they started filming the scenes with him as Muffley, he played Muffley as having a cold um, to kind of emphasize the character's weakness and ineffectiveness. Yeah. And he he spoke with a kind of nasal, coffee kind of voice, and it was hilarious. It was cracking everybody up. But Kubrick and he decided very early on that that would detract from the scenes and it would it would make them f- people focus on the wrong things so they reshot the scenes and they're playing it's where he's just playing it straight but you can see 
a couple of times, like at the very beginning of the scene, he's like tucking a handkerchief into his sleeve. And you can also see he has like an inhaler in front of him on the desk, like one of those things that goes over the mouth and nose. It looks like a something like that for asthma, maybe. So there yeah. are re- there are remnants of the original concept in the in the finished film. Uh, anything more on Strange Love? Um, just to mention my favorite piece of trivia about it. One of my favorite pieces of trivia about any movie is the Kubrick insisted that the um, that the table of the war room where all the generals are sitting around be overlaid with green felt like a poker table because these men were playing basically playing games with the fate of the world it was just a game to them where they bet you know turgidson bets how many uh, civilians they'll lose and things like that so he insisted that it look like a poker table and of course that did not come across at all because the film is black and white so <laughs> i wonder how much that affected the performances of the, of um sellers and and um george c scott and of course peter bull as the russian ambassador did they feel that energy of playing poker with the fate of the world i don't know if they ever talked about it we'll never know nope um so all these nominees lost um, this year to Rex Harrison's portrayal of Professor Henry Higgins in My Fair Lady, which he'd done for a number of years on the stage, some of which was with Julie Andrews as Eliza Doolittle. And she was shunned. Um, Jack Warner said she wasn't famous enough uh, to do this movie, and Rex Harrison was fairly pissed at this. Um, rightly so, I would think. Um yeah. How do how do you think that sort of piece of casting worked out initially with Eliza? The first time I saw this film, um, and when I, I actually read back my blog entry for 1964, I was very effusive about it. Um, I did not agree with it beating Dr. Strangelove, but I apparently very much enjoyed this film two years ago, and I was absolutely on board with Audrey Hepburn as Eliza Doolittle, in fact, thinking that maybe it was the right call, because I couldn't, I couldn't really see the same energy out of Julie Andrews, because she's just, she's very posh to me, and I couldn't really see her doing the Cockney version of Eliza. Um, So, at the time, I think it was a good call. And even now, I think maybe it was the right call, even though I have cooled considerably towards both the film and Audrey Hepburn's performance in it. I I would only say it was the good call because we have Mary Poppins, and I'm very, very happy with Julie Andrews' performance in Mary Poppins, which I don't think anyone could have done any better. Um True, and I also think that that's a far superior film to My Fair Lady, um, and would have been anywhere. So, yep. uh, in that sense, I don't mind that Audrey Hepburn was cast in this. I don't think she does a bad job in this. Um, it's just not a great job, and it's. Hmm. I think you can also tell that some of the Cockney is even dubbed. Some of the co- yep. Cockney and dubbed not very well because they've maybe not had much time in the studio to, to do it afterwards. 
I do think that most of the good songs come from Eliza. Um, there are some really dodgy songs in this movie. Like, I think, like, <laughs> there. I mean, come on. There's one song where it's Rex Harrison and Wilfred, like, blanking on his surname, um, as as Colonel Pickering. Um, is is Hyde White? Hyde White. Um, is doing this. Um, you did it. You did it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not it's barely a song i mean come on like and some of the songs just need chopping um but i think in terms of eliza my favorite was w- wouldn't it be lovely and i also like i would have danced all night which is obviously the one that she definitely wouldn't have been able to sing yeah i think my i i really liked um show me just because I like the energy and I like the rhyme scheme and I like uh, her performance of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And well, of course it's not really her, is it? And it's not really him, but it's, I like that song very much. I think it's my favorite one. I think 10% of the, the, the song she did, the, the singing, um, somebody later mm-hmm. c- quoted that percentage anywhere. Um, but like, I mean, this film was like introduced to me by my grandmother again, like Gone with the Wind. So this was kind of a childhood favorite of mine. And my opinion on it's definitely soured since then, but I still have a soft spot, a little bit of a soft spot for it. But I can't really defend the music that much. Um, and I think George Cooker, um, by this point, his films were getting kind of stodgy, stodgy looking. Yeah. Yeah. But the... Here's the thing about what why I didn't like Audrey Hepburn this time around. Um, it's because her Eliza is genuinely stupid at the beginning. Like, she can't follow basic conversations mm. or any kind of metaphor or anything that isn't a literal statement. And then she gets confused by literal statements as well. Yeah. Like she she can't follow anything and all of a sudden she just blossoms into this intelligent, um, insightful person, strong-willed person because she can speak better. And in the original Pygmalion with Wendy, uh, with Wendy Hiller, sh- she wasn't like that. She spoke with a Cockney accent, but she had all of the insight and all of the wisdom and everything else that you know the eliza that could speak you know properly had it was all there it's just that people didn't notice it because of her low class accent and her low class upbringing which was kind of the point but in this one it just seemed like she magically changed when she began to speak properly she also got a brain yeah it's kind of like the ugly ugly duckling into the swan it's that severe um and you think yeah. that you definitely blame in um, Hepburn for that and not the script. You think she could have interpreted both. the script? Okay, both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I'm also I'm blaming her for the ow, <laughs> <laughs> the scowling, so much scowling. Yeah, and I'm a good girl. I am. <laughs> like every three <laughs> seconds, it's like, ah. Uh, yeah, I. Uh, 
Yeah. I mean, I yeah, I agree with you. I think, I mean, I think we. The only defense I can give to that is that maybe, when he's been honing her voice, he's been forcing her to read all of this other shit that's then hmm. broadened her horizons. But it is too much of a, a leap. Um, but I wanted to talk about this. The intermission to this film is an hour and 40 minutes in. The film is two, <laughs> two hours and 55 minutes, this film. So an hour and 40 minutes in, we're at the point where Eliza has changed. She's, got, she's been taken to the ball. She's virtually been transformed. What on earth is left to tell about this story that we have a whole other half left? Like, I was baffled by this decision. Um, and everything in the second half of the movie... It's pretty much just waffle, to be honest. Like, it's will they yep. will they stay together or won't they? Um, and I do get that this is like part of this musical roadshow trend where you make an event like the theatre. You you get everyone in the cinema. You give them some ice cream, popcorn. You have an interval in the beginning. Then we're back for the second half, and it's an all night event, and everybody, all the family, mm-hmm. can come, and that's great. But at some point, you do need to justify the running time. Um, And this could probably easily be 130 minutes and then go to the ball, not have the intermission. And after that, she comes back and they have that argument and she goes to the mothers and that's that. Um, And this just feels bloated. Like, you can do it. An American in Paris did this really well. It was paced really, really well. And it was... I think under two hours. Um, this just really felt like, come on, you're trying to you're trying to get as much as many songs and as as many plot points as you can into this movie, and it didn't need them all. Yeah, well, I know how they could have cut about twenty or twenty five minutes. Is get rid of her father. Oof, right? Not not feeling the. I didn't I didn't understand why they had to have the wedding song. That was why. Yeah. He wasn't even that big of a character, yeah. I know, yeah, that was ridiculous. But with a little bit of luck, could have been performed by anybody. It could have just been a rant. It could have just been a... You know how sometimes musicals just briefly have a number where it's just the chorus people? Why not just have it be that, you know? Uh, no, I, I don't think Stanley Holloway needs to be in this film at all. Um, and much less get a nomination for Best Supporting Actor. That's bizarre. I thought he was really good in the one scene where he goes to see Henry Higgins and mm. he's like sort of frank about it. He's sort of like, well, what am I going to do with her? You know, um, she's, she'd be a lot better off here. Um, but I'm just letting you know that she's she does have family and um, I will support her, but we're not that close. I thought it was quite well played, um, but... For me, the star of my my fair lady is Rex Harrison, and this is the role that he was born to play for me. I think, because I mean, pretty much as a person in real life, I think um, he was pretty much reviled by everyone who worked with him, and he was really um, he was kind of like a bit of a tyrant and a diva and wanted his own way. Some of the stories from the Doctor Doolittle set are just like monstrous. Um, and I think like there was this story of, um, he was 
somebody asked him for an autograph backstage from My Fair Lady, and he, this woman, and he, he sort of said, you know, something like um, get lost or something. And this woman hit him with the program from the, from the show, and there was somebody that commented, and they said, I think the line was something like, "Oh, that's the first time the fan has hit the shit." <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So I like I really don't um think he was popular but I th- is doesn't that kind of play into this role like um we've talked about a lot of performances in this category that require dramatic clout at least the first couple. Um but I really don't think what Rex Harrison is doing in this movie is necessarily any easier than that. Um I think it's deceptively excellent comedy acting and it's the film basically is a showcase for him because her character is a lot weaker, I think, um, in terms of its writing. But he does like also show genuine surprise at his strong feelings towards her in the second half. I think he's actually kind of gets across the melancholy within Henry Higgins and sort of the, the, that he might be a little bit lonely, even though he'd, he'd say it. Um, and he, he does feel honestly quite hurt when she she's unhappy that he's treated her terribly. Um, but, like, I mean, the, the first half does have the showcase because some of the insults are just fantastic. Like, I, when he said, like, stuff like he'll say, um, we'll have none of your slum prudery here, young woman. I mean, just, like, absolutely killer lines. Um, and then when they do have that argument which is my favourite line in the whole film. He says, And damn my own folly for having lavished my hard-earned knowledge and the treasure of my regard and intimacy upon a heartless gutter snipe. Just fantastic. I think I could not doubt the character for a second, the way he played it. Well, I don't disagree entirely that this was the role he was meant to play. And yes, he was kind of a shit. In real life. And definitely, I think the horror stories from Dr. Doolittle stemmed a lot from this film because he like won an Oscar and he was just faded and now he was the big star and he could do he could be like that with even more impunity. Um, And of course, this film, it's a just a showcase for his amazing singing talent. But (laughs) his talking talent. Yeah. um, What? What struck me from almost the beginning is that I didn't see him as playing Henry Higgins. I saw him as playing Leslie Howard playing Henry Higgins. All of the great lines in this film were from Pygmalion and delivered so much better by Leslie Howard. And when I saw Rex Harrison delivering them, I could just hear him evoking that. So... I wasn't that impressed by this performance simply because it wasn't a new interpretation of the character to me or an interesting interpretation. I thought that Leslie Howard hit it out of the park in Pygmalion and he expressed it all without fake singing. And those lines, the lines that you mentioned are in Pygmalion and spoken with such amazing panache and amazing uh, feeling by Leslie Howard 
I mean, I'm I freely admit I'm biased towards Leslie Howard, I guess, but man, I every comparison of this film to that one, uh, Pygmalion's a clear winner for me, and that that definitely includes both lead performances. I agree. I think Leslie Howard's great. I think the problem, I think where I'm coming from with this is that I'd seen My Fair Lady before Pygmalion. Um, Mm -hmm. So I never had to compare him to Leslie Howard and think that it was an impression, which obviously, um, since Pygmalion was in the 30s, um, it is obviously the the original uh, example of this story. Um, I didn't really liken the two. I actually think, I mean, I think like Leslie Howard is better, definitely. But it's it just feels to me as if the that role is just a great role to play anyway. It's sort of like um, the dismissive nature of that role and the the single mindedness of his his sort of um, ambition and the way that he treats everything and everyone with contempt. Yeah. I think that's just mm-hmm. a winning combination in terms of character and the production. And I think this production is good enough to let him shine within that, um, Harrison. But I can't mm-hmm. disagree that all of the Pygmalion uh, performers are better and the films a whole. It's just adding music to it, I think, um, diminishes it somewhat. It, it really does elongate it in a way it shouldn't be. Yeah. Well, that that's true of a lot of musicals. It, and also, I wanted to bring up this time, what is going on with Freddy? He's like a proper stalker. That is really weird. Like he's outside her house saying, oh, I just want to be here all night because you're there in the next house. As if that's romantic. Ugh, that's horrible. Yeah, yeah he's he's just a dope. Okay, and I, I wanted to point one scene in particular and compare the um, Henry Higgins in this to Henry Higgins and Pygmalion, and it's the scene where they go to the racetrack. In in this one, he's embarrassed by her and just constantly annoyed and exasperated. And the, I mean, he laughs a little bit at the end, but that's it. In Pygmalion, Henry Higgins loves it. He loves how uncomfortable his the others of his set are and he's kind of charmed by Eliza's weird combination of proper accent with cockney inflection and her and her gutter snipe stories he loves it he loves every second of it and he is relishing the discomfort of the people around him and that is such to me that's such a better way to play that scene and a much better uh, way to play the character of Henry Higgins. And it shows that contempt, the way he treats a duchess like a flower girl, it's much more on display in the Pygmalion version than in the in the Fair Lady version. Yeah, like he's reveling in his own creation, sort of semi, yep. semi-created woman. Um, yeah, I, I actually thought, it's been a while since I saw Pygmalion, I thought Hepburn did quite well in that scene, but that definitely is the scene where one of the the strongest scenes for Eliza as a character, that like comedically. Um, but I I thought it was, for me I thought like the acting was not the problem in this movie. I feel like maybe this is a sort of 
the sort of story that belongs on the stage for the most part. Trying to make it cinematic is, especially nowadays or in a modern uh, in a modern film, I think trying to make it cinematic poses its problems. Whereas in the 30s, they were a lot more comfortable with stage adaptations and the scope of the budget wasn't there to really branch out much from that. And I think it sort of suited the screen then, whereas I don't think it did in 1960s. Yeah, I entirely agree. I think we might have a bit of a different ranking going on then later on. Um, Yes. (laughs) We have some listener questions, a couple of listener questions. Um, first one's from Daddio, and he asks, which of Seller's performances in Doctor Strange of is the best? Um, or which, yeah, which is the best performance of the three characters? Um, Strange, Love, Muffley, or Mandrake? What are your thoughts? I was thinking about this while I watched the film, and I love all three for various reasons, but I think probably my favorite is Mandrake just because he watching him be so uncomfortable and not know what to do and trying to maintain in trapped in Ripper's office as the madness just pours out of him. And it's just incredible to watch and, and Sellers plays it so subtly like he his his discomfort but that british stiff upper lip you know maintained the whole time and and then you know his line is just delivered perfectly about you know the japanese making such bloody good cameras you know it's (laughs) what a what a great throwaway line and he delivers it with such perfect casualness um yeah i I love, and then when he's dressing down Colonel Guano later, he's got his he's got his confidence back. He's got his you know his Britishness back. It's fantastic. <laughs> he's great. I I liked um, Muffley the best. Just like I think, like the phone calls with Dimitri, I just thought was so funny. Like Dimitri, don't get hysterical, Dimitri. It's like, where he's like <laughs> saying, "I o- I always call you. What are you what are you talking about? I always call you." Um, I, I just thought that was so funny, just the delivery, but um, they're all great. They're all, and they're all very different. You've got this sort of old-fashioned Englishman, you've got the American and the the old-fashioned German. So it's kind of like uh, the triple threat. Yep. Uh, next, we've got a question from Zeta Short, and she says, how amazing is that scene where Peter O'Toole gets to tell his on-screen wife that he doesn't like their children? Amazing, but uh, it, it's hard for that scene to match uh, Hepburn in Lion and Winter saying, I don't much like our children. <laughs> I think that that is probably the best um, parental put down of these two uh, Henry II themed films. Um, but it is nice to to see Peter O'Toole get to say it as well. I think there's a couple of absolutely like stellar lines in this that he says to his wife. Like one of them, he says, "Your body, madam, was a desert. The duty forced me to wander in alone." <laughs> I mean, come on, that is vicious. That is vicious. Yep. Um, but yeah, I there's some deceptively uh, 
sort of disgraceful lines in this, which I got quite a lot of pleasure from. Um, so, yeah, it was fun. It was fun. And I don't think I nailed the Hepburn quite as well as I did Maggie Smith there, but <laughs> I'm going to own it. <laughs> uh, okay, so we we reached that immortal question. Why did Rex Harrison win this Oscar and was it close? What do you think? I think he rode the success of My Fair Lady. Uh, I think that there was probably some splitting going on between O'Toole and Burton. And I think that the negative press around Dr. Strangelove, some of the negative reviews probably hurt it. In fact, it, it didn't win any of its nominations, so it definitely got hurt along the way and also because as we mentioned it was the oldest of the films had been released in january so maybe it was um, a little bit out of voters minds at this point um i think rex harrison won because it was a very showy lead and he did well in it and he got to show off his you know quote-unquote range yeah i i don't think it was close um we talk about the Best Picture winner. This was already a renowned role on stage and film since the 30s or late 20s. Um, and the musical was a big success story on the stage and the screen. Um, he constantly steals scenes, I would say, from Audrey Hepburn. Um, he is probably who you'd end up leaving the film thinking about um, rather than her. So I think... On that level, he had a lot going for him coming into the race. And we've got Anthony Quinn had won two Oscars already. Um, so that would have seemed like overkill, to be honest. And um, I think in Beckett, was there a performance that stands prominently over the other enough to get them the win? I would argue not. So, yeah, it feels like this was quite comfortable for Rex. Yep. Uh, snubs is is there anybody you think a was close to this lineup and b that you would have put into it um i could maybe see um could maybe see bert lancaster in seven days in may being in the conversation uh because that was a very good role for him and a kind of uh a villainous role for him which you know, can sometimes be an asset in Oscar, you know, in Oscar conversations. Um, but thinking about the other big winners and big nominees in the category in, in the Oscars this year, I think these five were probably rose to the top quite easily. Yeah, I yeah, there's, I, it's interesting that you mentioned Burt Lancaster. I think Frederick March got a Golden Globe nomination for Seven Days in May as lead. Mm. So is that a code lead situation? I've not seen that film. I I don't know if I'd describe Frederick March's lead in that film. I think he he's I think he's third build, and I think he's definitely. I mean, he's in a lot of the film for sure, but I don't think I'd call him a lead. Okay. I think it's more he and uh, Lancaster and Douglas are more co leads in it. Okay. Um, the other one I'd mention is maybe close, maybe Marcello Mastriani for Marriage Italian Style. I was thinking about that, um, which I just saw that film recently. Um, maybe is 
you know, he had just been nominated a couple years before this for Divorce Italian Style, so maybe he was um, not quite due yet for another nomination. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. And it's definitely more Lorenz film in terms of a acting, you know, triumph, I think. So she got nominated, yes. of course, and I think it's I think her her nomination is more deserved than his would have been for this film. Yeah, he's much better in divorce Italian style. Yeah. Um I think also Peter Sellers not nominated for the Golden Glove for Doctor Strange Love but nominated instead for the Pink Panther. What do you think about that? Yeah, he was busy this year. He had the Pink Panther and uh, Shot in the Dark, both in the Pink Panther series. Um, I think he could have definitely scored a nomination, but I think that uh, that role is a little more, a little more comedic and a little less Oscar-y, mm. I guess. And the film itself is less Oscar-y than Dr. Strangelove. So definitely a snub, but kind of an understandable one, I think. Yeah, I think when you, if you talk about a body of work, which Sellers might have got the nomination for, um, for the three films that year, you would give it to the film that was the best movie. So yeah, it, it makes exactly. sense to, to give it to Dr. Strangelove. In terms of people that should be there, I want to, Definitely shout out Cliff Robertson in The Best Man. Um, that's a really, really great performance. The best I've seen him give. And also Dirk Bogard in King and Country. Um, the Joseph Losey mm. film about... It's about a, somebody that's court-martialed. Um, but it's excellent. Excellent movie. Alright. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. So I have to have to check it out. Okay, um, so wider observations. Um, this was in the middle of a trend of musicals winning Best Picture Oscars five in 11 years. Will we ever see that again? I hope not, because... <laughs> well, th- these musicals were all from like 20 years after the golden age of musicals. So the Academy finally got around to going nuts for musicals when it was too late, you know? The best musicals came out in the 40s and 50s, and then in the 60s, they finally thought, oh, maybe we should start awarding these every year, even though there are much, much, much better films that we could give it to. Um, It's weird, and I think it's kind of like the last gasp of the old guard before the new Hollywood kind of moved in on the Academy, and and brought us into the 70s um, with Midnight Cowboy and, and the rest. But yeah, it, it was an odd, it's an odd time. And um, musicals of today are not markedly different than the musicals of the 60s. And so I'm, I'm quite happy to not see another decade of musical films winning Best Picture. Yeah, I don't think we'll see this kind of prolificness with the genre again. Although I would welcome more musicals to be made, at least more decent musicals, to be honest. And I think yeah. we'd, do, we'd do a remake of West Side Story, which, to be honest, I'm not that interested in. But there's mm-hmm. some other ones in The Heights coming out, which is a, a musical that's been around for 
about seven or eight years, I think, on um, Broadway. Um, mm-hmm. And an original musicals like Annette, I think, Leos Carax is doing. So it, I think original ones, I think, a f- you know, three or four good ones a year, fine. And um, that, that you know, keeps that genre alive. Same with Westerns, which you don't get much of anymore. So sort of, it is nice to keep genres alive that don't really feel like they're being recognized. Um, yeah, and and maybe, you know, and just like with Westerns, maybe the musical genres do for a renaissance um, where they kind of rediscover it, but also modernize it a bit and, and fix some of the... Uh, shortcomings of the classic era the problematic elements of the classic era but you know make musicals like an american in paris and singing in the rain not like my fair lady and sound of music and fucking la la land Mm. we'll save that for another time (laughs) but uh yeah Yeah. i mean i think yeah the, the examples recently with musicals have not been very good no um, any other wider observations on 64? I think we already talked about some in the last episode we did, but... Yeah. And just kind of the dominance of the Best Picture category. I don't remember if we talked about that in the last 64 episode, but it really is incredible just how much these five films were just what won everything. And it only... Yeah, they only lost like three categories that they were eligible for which is just incredible and of course that's only four of them dr sellers i mean dr strangelove um (laughs) unforgivably shut out this year yeah i think i mean zorb was the only one that i oh no actually my fair lady (laughs) um Mm. but i think the other three are, are completely deserving of nominations um yep okay shall we rank these Let's do it. Okay, you go first. That's your category. All right. Uh, number five, I have Rex Harrison. Number, f- just going to breeze past it. Number four, <laughs> um, Anthony Quinn. Number three, Peter Sellers. Again, amazing performance, arguably career high, and maybe the most impressive feat of acting, just tr- bouncing between the three characters so well. Um, but number two, I have Richard Burton and number one, I have Peter O'Toole. And had I been alive and an Academy member in 1964, I would not have been so quick to vote O'Toole between the two of them. I would have agonized over it, but simply watching it now with no consequences, I, I have to give it to my man, Peter O'Toole. Okay. Wow. Okay. Could not be more different. Um, okay. So... (laughs) A number of, apart from this one, which is number five, I have Anthony Quinn, which I just didn't think the technical level was was quite there. Number four, I've got Peter O'Toole because Ouch. it it was the lead. It was to be honest, I think if we hadn't watched The Lion in Winter that recently, it he might have been higher. But I because I thought he was so much better in The Lion in Winter. Mm-hmm. This and I also felt like Richard Burton was better in this film. So I think that's why he's uh, that low. But I would say everyone above Anthony Quinn was like great to excellent. Number three, I've got Richard Burton. I think 
the harder of the roles in Beckett for me. And um, I think the most interesting performance, um, I think maybe some issues selling me with, with the religious commitment, um, which is the only reason he's not higher. But uh, Number two, I've got Peter Sellers. I think, I think normally I wouldn't, put something so high when you're playing three characters for 20 minutes each or 30, you know, 25 minutes each. But then I'm thinking, I do think there's a lot of depth within two of the characters within uh, Mandrake and Muffley. I think there's quite a lot of depth. Strange Love is a little bit of caricature, but I, it he really is the film. So it's hard to deny that. I think he was wonderful. And also I was mean about him in being there so it's kind of atoning for that uh and number one i have rex harrison just because i feel like it's the sort of a strange synergy between his real persona sort of filters probably into this and it i think the um egomaniac um comes through quite clearly um, and I do think he's very entertaining, but that's not to say that Leslie Howard wasn't in the 1930-year version. Yep. Uh, we have a website. It's categorically.com. We're on Twitter uh, at Categorically O. What's happening next week? Well, that is the question. Uh, depending on how the Oscars go on Sunday or Monday, I guess for us here in the UK, um, depending on how our predictions go, we will either be talking about your nightmare category, which is Best Picture 2008, and those nominees, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Frost Nixon, Milk, The Reader, and the winner, Slumdog Millionaire, or my nightmare category, Best Picture 1930-31, the uh, nominees East Lynn, The Front Page, Skippy, Traderhorn, and Cimarron. And oh man. Oh man, this is going to be bad. No matter what. I, I think, like we were talking about the last episode, you'd be breaking the bourbon out on Sunday night. I think we'll. It might help if we break the bourbon out for when we record next week's episode, to be honest, and just go wild yep. on everything that's wrong with most of these nominees. I I am fine with that. Uh, that sounds like a very good way to get through the next episode. <laughs> um, happy Oscar weekend, everyone, and we will be back with a new episode on Tuesday, May the 4th. <laughs>